Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Today, we're going to have a strong focus on politics rather than economics per se. Of course, bearing in mind that political events have economic consequences. So that's important to bear in mind because a lot of what we're going to discuss today uh, certainly will have economic implications sometime down the road. Ireland, the United States and the United Kingdom, I think, are the three main political entities that I think we want to discuss today. But I just throw it out there that we said in our first podcast of the year that this was going to be the year of elections and they are ongoing. We're about to have the world's third largest democracy, over 200 million people voting in the presidential election in Indonesia shortly. And the favourite to win that election is a guy called Prabowo Subianto. He's a 72-year-old former general with a very dark past. Okay, so okay, I'll just mark that. I want to start, Chris, really with the Irish political situation. We have discussed many times the performance of Sinn Féin, and we've seen Sinn Féin starting to slip in the opinion polls in recent times, and there is a little bit of a trend starting to become established, I would have thought. Obviously, Sinn Féin will recognise that fact and they will do whatever it takes to try and turn it around over the coming months. And I have to say, their first attempt at doing that does not fill me with glee. They had a motion in the doll last night, basically to scrap the TV licence. And I think more significantly, For all of those who have not paid their TV licenses in the past and who are being chased through the legal system, they want an amnesty for all of those people. There is a a Oireachtas committee hearings going on at the moment about the latest revelations at RTE, which are absolutely mind blowing. You know, people being leaving their jobs for incompetence and being paid 
packages to leave and so on. So with every day that passes, we, we hear more and more about the, I guess, incompetence and dysfunctionality at RTE. Can but I ask you a question about that? Yeah, Jim? you can, Chris. Begin with a comment and then go on to a question. Obviously, Sinn Féin there are trying to appeal to a particular section of the population, people who, um, first of all, pay their licence fee in the sense that it gets abolished, and then a, a, a small percentage of those who haven't paid it. I wonder just whether that tells you something about the factionalism of Sinn Féin and whether or not they, they can lay claim to representing all people. Because if you were to try to think from this, think about this from scratch, uh, in the interest of fairness and equity, surely the right thing to do would be to say, okay, let's give everybody back their license fee so that everybody gets to not pay their license fee rather than the rule breakers being rewarded for breaking rules, even though I guess Sinn Féin says they understand why they do break the rules. So rewarding rule breakers is an interesting bill to bring before the lawmaking body of the Doyle, isn't it? That, uh, uh, you know, this is, the, this is the body that makes the laws of the country and now that we're getting a bill that rewards law-breaking. Is that, is that too extreme of you, do you think? I don't think so. Actually, it's funny you should say that because when I was out from my nightly walk last night, I was thinking about this. Um, you know, I have always paid my TV licence as critical as I would be of RT and a lot of the content they produce. And I have been very critical over the years. Um, in fact, I rarely watch it, actually. I always pay the licence because it's a legal requirement to pay the licence. If the people who refuse to pay the licence, and I think the controversy in RT over the last 12 months is just... Um, another excuse not to pay the license by and large for many people but if they get an amnesty I certainly uh, would seriously considering doing whatever I possibly could to make sure I get recompense for all of the licenses I have paid legally over I don't know how many years at this stage. Yeah so, it's an interesting attitude towards yeah. the law and we could I guess go off on a journey about how Sinn Féin's got an interesting history of its adherence or otherwise to the law but let's park that for a second and come to my question for you. And it's a bit of a googly, so prepare yourself. Should RTE exist? That is an interesting question because the notion of public service broadcasting is well established uh, here in Ireland and indeed overseas. You know, if you look at BBC, it is a public service broadcast. In a lot of trouble. In a lot of trouble, it is a publicly it is a public service broadcaster. Okay, it is funded primarily from the license fee. There is no commercial income because it doesn't advertise. Um, but yeah, it, it is. It's it's a model that's struggling. But listen, show me a media model that isn't struggling at the moment. I'm I'm not sure it's the public service piece of it that makes the BBC struggle. Media globally is struggling but i guess the point i would make in answering a question about rte um there is some argument to be made for public service broadcasting here in ireland but the question is should the public service broadcaster have a dual funding model so in other words um it gets some of its income from the license fee that's the public service broadcasting remit i guess and then it gets a lot of it gets a lot of revenue through commercial means such as sponsorship, advertisements, and so on. Um, I, I think the model of having those that hybrid model actually, I don't think works, and I think that should be scrapped. Um, so I, I think RTE 
should become a pure public service broadcaster that is not dependent or influenced by commercial revenues. And um, the question then has to be answered, how do you fund that? Is it directly through the exchequer? Is it the existing license fee? Or is it some sort of um, IT fee that has been mooted by some people in recent times? Can you Um, make the argument for public service broadcasting to exist? Well, you know, one of the arguments is that it's, it's good for democracy, that if you don't have public service broadcasting that operates properly, that does operate properly, that it is good for democracy in the sense that um, it is pluralistic. It offers all views, attitudes in a, uh, I guess, in a neutral way. And if you start to clamp down on that as the um, the PIS in Poland did uh, before Donald Tusk replaced him, you know, they start to take control of the media uh, they started to sack journalists who were actually um, coming out with views that the government didn't agree with. So I, I guess that's the alternative. So I guess I guess the the old fashioned way of expressing that would be that in the old days of coup d'etats, when the military took over the country, the first yeah. building they took over was the radio station. Yeah, uh, and that if you don't have some kind of public service broadcasting, you have things like Fox News, as in the states, dominating yeah. the the media. Uh, and I guess it's a whole bunch of arguments like that. I actually agree with you that I think there is a role for public service broadcasting. I think democracy demands it. And I think the demise of traditional media, the, you know, the the fact that, that all newspapers, almost without exception, are struggling. And uh, I was, I think we were both told in a separate conversation earlier today offline that there are rumours that many newspapers are just going to Thursday, Friday, Saturday printing models they are in such trouble i've no idea how true that is but i I can understand why somebody would would think about doing newspaper printing in that way it won't be too long i suspect before we don't have any print media at all that it it is online and you have to think through the consequences of that for for our societies for our democracy and a new model of public service broadcasting is needed and i think you're you're getting at it uh, in the right way there which is to say yes we do need a public service broadcaster but not the one that we're used to. You know, we, we, we have a situation in this country, for example, where um, RTE is a public service broadcaster that gets subsidised through the licence fee and other. Um, it has got a lot of state aid over recent years because of financial shortfalls uh, and, and so on. It is out there as, you know, a hybrid. Okay, it's in the commercial market looking for advertising. It is competing with private operators such as Virgin for that advertising and yet it's been subsidized to do so there seems to be a huge state aid issue here for me I have to say there is that absolutely but there's also the case that in the modern world where those mainstream media private sector 100% private sector media organizations are struggling for advertising revenues competing with them is already a lost cause that's that's a competitive battle that if it hasn't already been lost uh, RTE are going to lose and lose badly. Sorry, could you explain that, Chris? Well, if you think about the, the, the Guardian, for example, the newspaper here that is independently owned, it's, it's owned by a charity, is that there are rumours that it's having to lay off lots of journalists because its digital advertising revenues are collapsing and it's not got enough paying subscribers. 
substitute the word Guardian for any other newspaper in particular, but media organisations generally. Channel 4 News here in the UK is rumoured to be uh, in the same straits. There is talk of a collapse in digital advertising revenues for mainstream media. So RTE and competition for those digital adver- for those advertising revenues, however they may occur, be, be it on the TV or on their website. And these private sector organizations who are struggling to get these revenues are much better at getting these revenues okay. than RTE, okay. I suspect. Okay, and- I, get you. I get your point, yeah. Okay, but anyway, uh, we've, we've gone off sort of on a tangent there talking about public service Apologies. Uh, no, no, it's good. No, it's, it's, I think it's fascinating, uh, but uh, it's relevant because of what Sinn Féin is doing at the moment. But I, I just looked at that yesterday thinking if that's the best Sinn Féin can do to try and reverse its slide in the opinion polls, I think it's pretty pathetic, to be honest. And um, obviously, there's a lot more to be seen over the coming months as to what Sinn Féin is made of. Is it the least bad option facing at the moment? Because... One of the things that I've seen speculated about across various uh, journalists and other commentators is that Sinn Féin must be toying with a lurch to the anti-immigration right. And even Sinn Féin, I suspect, is thinking, oh my gosh, is that something that we really want to do? Because that, according to the cephologists, that's the name, of course, for people who conduct opinion polls, that's where they're leaking votes is is to that that faction. Yeah. And if they want to get their votes back, they've got to become a, a more hard right, ironically, for a left-wing yeah. party, party on immigration. So is it caught on the horns of a dilemma? I think it's in a huge horns of a dilemma. And I, I think I said on this podcast, the one thing that struck me the night I walked out of the Gresham Hotel into the midst of the riots in O'Connell Street and Parnell Square last November, um, the thing that struck me God, wouldn't it be great to see Sinn Féin in government at the moment to see how Sinn Féin would handle this? Um, it's it's a re- And then all the anti-immigrant protests that are taking part around the country. Um, you'd wonder what Sinn Féin's attitude would really is and, and, and is there uni- unity within the party? Uh, inter- interestingly, I saw a video that's on social media in the last couple of days where uh, there was obviously some anti-immigrant protests taking part in Donny, taking place in Donegal, and this local teacher came up, basically telling this guy that we don't want you around here. You know, you're racist, etc., etc. Uh, she was Welsh, actually. What, okay, the person, the person who was speaking, the person who was speaking, yeah, who was who was telling the anti-immigrant person to basically get lost. They didn't want. Um, his type around and um, so it was if you see it it was it was a very strong contribution from the Welsh teacher living in Donegal who you know while she said she's a foreigner but the reason why they don't pick on her is because she's white and and she also went on to stress that she pays her taxes etc etc but anyway on social media this clip was up and I saw one of the comments from Pierce Doherty basically praising her saying well said okay and bravo okay so there's no lurch to the right just yet well but you see Pierce Doherty and those people that we see uh, the high profile ones like Louise O'Reilly Pierce Doherty and and so on David Cullinan you know they do not necessarily represent um, 
a large segment of the party. Who knows? But I, I do think this the immigration thing is going to be a huge, huge challenge for Sinn Féin over the next 12 months. If they do go down that hard right immigration, anti-immigration thing, that will be a really interesting political journey that lots of hard left people and parties over the years in this country, in the UK, have made from being ex-communists to being hard right libertarians. It's, it's, it's a really peculiar, interesting political journey. But if Sinn Féin do go down that road, they, they will have managed the hard left to hard right journey without actually ever becoming a centrist party in the middle. It'd be quite a step, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, I, I have to say I don't see it happening. I mean, I do not see Sinn Féin following the hard right path, I have to say. Um, I think they will try and focus more and more on the centre, to be honest. OK, sorry, um, I have taken us on a huge digression. I no, you have not, Chris. It's I think it's fascinating. Um, my final point on the Irish political scene you know, Sinn Féin is one party leading in the polls, albeit slipping. The party that came third in the last election, Fine Gael, um, it lost 12 seats in 2020. It ended up with 35 TDs. And nine of those TDs to date have announced that they are not standing in the next general election. So Richard Bruton, Paul Kyo down in Wexford, Fergus O'Dowd up in Louth, Brendan Griffin in Kerry, Charlie Flanagan and Lee Offaly, Joe McHugh and Donegal, Michael Creed and David Staunton in Cork, and John Paul Phelan in Kilkenny. A, a lot of talent there, okay? A lot of important people in the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party, a lot of strong vote getters. So I'm asking myself the question, what the hell is happening within Fine Gael if we have all of these people I heard leaving? I heard uh, Leo Varadkar commenting recently that Fine Gael was always a party of regeneration and this is just part of the regeneration process. Um, I'm not sure I'd buy that. So in any consideration of Sinn Féin and the role it might play in the formation of the next government, you know, we have to look at the alternatives. And it strikes me, I may be wrong, it just strikes me that part of the alternative Fine Gael is actually facing massive challenges ahead it's of a bit like the, it's a bit like the conservative party yeah. here They're, they too have had a whole rake of announcement by sitting mps that they're just not going to bother at the next general election and of course they always cite personal reasons spending more time with the family etc for going they never say i'm giving up because it's hopeless the suspicion is of course it is hopeless and they are already thinking about their next career move, which doesn't involve being a politician because they are going to lose and lose badly is the current view. So it seems to have echoes of that. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I, I want to bring you on to UK politics um, later in the podcast, but could we go across the Atlantic to the United States first? Um, and we've discussed the Trump-Biden thing um, ad nauseum, and we will continue to do so, I suspect, over the coming months. Yesterday, the U.S. House of Representatives impeached the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas because of basically saying that because of what he's been doing down on the southern border, he's defying immigration law through his handling of that crisis. So and, and and apparently the grounds on which they got him are technically really, 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 really thin. Okay, um, but anyway, he has been impeached by the House of Representatives. Of course, the Senate, that's controlled by the Democrats, um, will acquit him, and and we'll just move on. But that uh, situation is just indicative, I think, of how poisonous U.S. politics is at the moment. Poisonous and dysfunctional. Uh, that's the first time a non-president but cabinet minister, the way that things work in the United States, in the history of the United States, has ever been impeached. And it sets a very dangerous precedent for whoever is president in the future. Any one of his cabinet, as well as him or herself, is now liable for this kind of very partisan, very dangerous, and I think quite undemocratic move. Um, policy ultimately rests with the president. And that if you want to have a go at somebody, you should have a go at him or her, um, not the people that he has appointed. But dysfunctional for the reasons that you've just discussed there, Jim, and of course, because of what's going on in Congress at the moment. The Senate has passed, as of yesterday, last night, a bill to send money and arms to Ukraine, mostly, but also Israel and Taiwan but it's mostly a, a spending bill for Ukraine. It's been trying to do this for months now, since the autumn of last year or even earlier. And when they first, when the administration first tried to get this bill through, the Republicans said, we're not going to do this unless you tighten up the border with more spending, more security, more laws. And so Biden gave the Republican Party everything that they asked for with respect to that. And having gotten everything that they asked for, they still said no. So this is the party that says no to everything. And as I've said before, the, this immigration thing, which is a real problem, it's a real problem that Biden's administration has messed up. There is a kernel of truth to this great lie. But the Republican Party clearly is not interested in solving the problem. They're only interested in immigration as a stick with which to beat Biden. The Senate stripped out the border thing and has come back and passed a, a spending bill exclusive for uh, Ukraine mostly and Taiwan and Israel and we don't know whether or not that will come before the House of Representatives because the Speaker of that House determines what comes to the floor and the Speaker has declared this new bill dead on arrival. There are all sorts of manoeuvres going on. Biden has adopted the bully pulpit and making all sorts of speeches um, and there is a constitutional mechanism whereby if some Republicans join with the Democrats and sign a, a particular kind of motion, they can force it through even if the Speaker doesn't want it. So there's all this going on. And by the time this podcast goes out, it may or may not have been resolved. 
But it's that Ukraine spending thing that I think is where people's attention should be focused. An ex-speechwriter for George Bush, actually, a guy called David Frum, I've mentioned him on this podcast quite a few times, actually. He's a, he's a neocon. He's, he's a conservative. He's an old-fashioned Republican, um, certainly not a Democrat. He wrote last night that uh, Putin's last hope, so Vladimir Putin's last hope, is House Speaker Mike Johnson. My goodness, Jim, to say something like that. And the reason why he wrote that, of course, is that Putin doesn't want this spending bill passed. And so Putin is hoping that Mike Johnson does what he wants him to do. And the fact is that there are plenty of people in Congress who, for all sorts of reasons, do not want this Ukraine spending bill to pass. It is another stick with which to beat Biden. And you can say playing fast and loose with Ukraine security is an appalling way of beating up Biden. But there we have. There's senators like uh, J.D. Vance, the guy who wrote Hillbilly Elegy, is quite happily walking around saying, I'll just do whatever Donald Trump tells me to do. And Donald Trump is telling me not to pass this bill. He doesn't actually, nobody actually bothers to ask, why does Donald Trump not want to do this? But to the extent that we know, it is, again, it's simply that he wants to beat up Joe Biden. There's actually an economic view in one or two senators, at least, that uh, Ukraine... Uh, even if you are anti-Russian, isn't worth spending a dollar on because Ukraine is bound to lose. So it's a waste of money. Uh, The arguments are incredible. There's another conservative journalist, a guy called Brett Stevens, who writes the New York Times. New York Times does employ uh, conservative right-wing journalists, believe it or not. And he's criticized Senate Republicans for reverting to the isolationism, and I'm quoting here, of the original America First Committee of pre-World War II infamy. Brett Stevens remarks uh, about the irony regarding one of the key spending bills that was voted against last week. That spending bill that has been rejected last week by uh, the Congress was put together over many, many months by one of the most conservative members of the Senate. You couldn't make this stuff up. So it's a way of striking an anti-Biden pose. Trump demands chaos and senators like Lindsey Graham, you might know that name. I'm sure you do. They're happy to to disparage, say, the Prime Minister of Poland on the floor of the Senate. Um, So Donald Tusk invoked the ire of uh, Senator Lindsey by uh, saying that Ronald Reagan, a hero of the conservative right in the United States, and Tusk said that Ronald Reagan, the winner of the Cold War, if you like, according to folklore, um, wouldn't have hesitated to support Ukraine. Graham unveiled a poster held up on a tripod on the floor of the Senate, according to the reports that I've seen, containing Tusk's words. And then he argued with those words. Um, it's it's pure pantomime. And you've got to remember that Lindsey Graham was only a very short while ago in Kiev and declaring his unwavering support for Ukraine. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's crazy, crazy stuff. That isolationism is something that I've spoken about before. I, I've been looking up who was who were part of this isolationist movement in a broader context. And did you know that Gerald Ford, uh, as a, a very young man, was part of that isolationist move and signed mm-hmm. petitions and, and jumped on that bandwagon? A certain John F. Kennedy did as well, believe it or really? not. Yeah, apparently, according to stuff that I've been reading. As a much, much younger man, of course, we're all entitled to change our minds. But the 
pre-war and indeed right up until Pearl Harbor isolationist move in the United States had many, many adherents. And so it goes back, this isolationism goes back an awful long way and has a long history in the United States. So as we speak, Jim, we're waiting to see whether this new spending bill will even come to a vote, and let alone what that vote might actually be. Meanwhile, Ukraine is running out of ammunition. And, and that's the simple military fact. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, fascinating. Moving back across to the UK, Chris, um, I see from the latest Sky um, poll that the Labour lead over the Conservatives has fallen from 19 to 12. That's a seven-point fall. Um, this is the lowest since June 2023. That's, you know, not too long ago. Um, but at 41%, Labour now has the lowest vote share since September 2022. And the pollsters are speculating, well, they're pointing out, you know, this is one poll and you cannot jump to any conclusions based on one poll. But they're sensing some shift in the vote for the Labour Party. And, and this poll was carried out, um, I think, the 9th to the 11th of February. OK, somewhere around that period. But um, so that's the poll. That's the Labour Party um, possibly in a little bit of difficulty in the Labour Party. Over the last few days, we've seen three members get into trouble. Graeme Jones, who is the former Hinburn MP, has been suspended. Um, Azhar Ali, who was running in Rochdale in the impending by-election, um, he has been removed from the ticket because of anti-Semitic comments he made. And it, that's the same reason as Graham Jones. And there's a guy called Mansus Dad, who is leader of Hinburn Council. He has also been investigated by the party at the moment because of anti-Semitic comments. Is this a trend? You understand well, I, the Labour Party a lot better than me. It's a lot to read, read into one poll. There's a trend. So I'm, I'm, not no, I'm talking to... about the anti-Semitism. Oh, the anti-Semitism has been pre pre present in the Labour Party for a long time. Uh, Keir Starmer has gone a long way to clearing it out. He's expelled people and he's had a zero tolerance approach to it to the point where Jewish members of the Labour Party that had previously resigned, some have come back. And it is an issue that we thought and hoped had gone away. But clearly it hasn't. And that the one of the gentlemen that you mentioned there has apologized for making remarks. So these are not allegations, unproven allegations. Apologies for making anti-Semitic remarks have been made. Nevertheless, he has been suspended. The problem that the left has is that there are an awful lot of people, particularly on the hard left, who are anti-Semitic. It's, it's, it's a simple fact of history. It's, it's been demonstrated time and time again. Just why this is, is the subject of a much longer podcast than this one. I read an interesting article by Lord Daniel Finkelstein only today that traced its roots all the way back to Lenin, the way in which Lenin talked about empire and global capitalism and the influence of Jews on global capitalism. And it's all wrapped up in that kind of, kind of nonsense. But the specific allegations, without going into all the history of anti-Semitism on the left, other than to observe that it, it, it exists, and it was at a kind of a peak under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, although he, of course, denied being anti-Semitic, um, the, the latest anti-Semitic trope uh, 
uh, being put forward by these Rochdale-type candidate people is that, uh, well, it goes something as follows, and I'm actually borrowing something from a, a Substack piece written by a journalist called David Aronovich, and this is the basic idea and the sort of words, not the exact words, but the sort of words being used in this latest outbreak of anti-Semitism. The Egyptians are saying they warned Israel 10 days earlier than the attacks of October the 7th. Americans warned them a day before that and that, that, that something was happening. The Israelis deliberately took the security off. They allowed that massacre that gives them the green light to do whatever they bloody well want. And that is essentially the, the, the specific thing that's being said here is that October the 7th was a put-up job by Israel which, of course, there is no evidence for whatsoever. It is another one out of countless similar conspiracy theories. Aronovich does it beautifully. He's written a book about conspiracy theories, actually. I'd recommend it. it it's, he's, he is an expert in this area. And he calls uh, the two groups that often respond with conspiracy theories to any kind of tragedy or, or event or war or whatever it is that they, they're getting excited about, and he calls them Lee Hops and Me Hops. The Lee Hops are somebody let it happen on purpose. And the Me Hops are the ones that say somebody made it happen on purpose. And the big, big somebody let it happen on purpose conspiracy theory is nothing to do with October the 7th. It's actually got to do with December 1941. Because did you know people wrote books, not just, you know, articles, books, about the fact that Pearl Harbor was a put-up job? By, by FDR in order to get America into the war. And you can go through all of these different things, and you probably, you definitely, I know you've seen all of the absolute crap that was written about 9-11, that 9-11 was a put-up job by the White House in order to invade Afghanistan and Iraq. And again, for which there is zero evidence whatsoever, and all of the evidence compellingly, convincingly says it was Osama bin Laden that done it. So it, it's, it's a recurring theme, and the recurring theme amongst all of these conspiracies, with the exception of Pearl Harbor, I suspect, um, most of them involve anti-Semitism somewhere along the line. And just why the world has been so anti-Semitic for so long with all of these different conspiracy theories, as I say, is a subject for a much, much longer discussion. But it seems that we have people in the UK, in the Labour Party, who believe, or at least are willing to uh, repeat these conspiracy theories. I've heard, before the Rochdale thing, I'd heard that conspiracy theory. Somebody I know has put it to me. And it, it's quite staggering how people can fall for this kind of absolute garbage. But there we are, Jim. This is the world in which we're living. And uh, anti-Semitism is, is rife. And it's always been part of left-wing politics in the UK or a faction within the left of UK. I don't want to tar, tar all left-wingers with the anti-Semitic brush. This chap, David Aronovich, who I'm quoting here uh, from his substack, who's written about conspiracy theories, particularly anti-Semitic ones, with a name like Aronovich, you can probably guess he's Jewish himself. Um, it, it's an extraordinary... He, he was this... Aronovich guy, uh, a long time ago, a, a communist, a Marxist. Um, I actually know the, his family history quite well because his father taught me economics in my first degree. Oh, okay. Um, Sam Aronovich, who was a leading yeah. member 
of the British Communist Party. Exactly. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so, 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 so not not all not not all hard lefties are anti-Semites. A lot of hard lefties are indeed Jewish. Um, so it's incredibly complicated. But the the simple fact is, a faction of left wingers in the UK have always been anti-Semitic, and it seems from Rochdale they still are. Right. Um, the last word here from me would be. Um, challenge for Keir Starmer and uh, I, I, I listen to Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell a lot and Alistair Campbell is always trying to push back against this notion that the Labour Party is a shoe-in um, he obviously wants Labour in government but uh, he's pushing back as I say against this notion that Labour is a shoe-in and I guess this is the first speed bump that Labour has experienced for quite some time it's been interesting. Yeah, huh? quite some time. A lot of people are saying it's Keir Starmer's worst day since he's became yeah. leader. And yeah. Aronovich says that's not true. It's actually the loss of Hartlepool um, was yes. uh, the, the worst day. Yes. And that, uh, you know, Starmer's been criticised for not handling this as quickly as he should. Um, he handled it pretty quickly. And I think that you don't respond to articles in the Daily Mail without doing an investigation first. Um, I think that's appropriate. Uh, so the but but Chris isn't isn't the real question mark over choosing as a rally in the first place? It does suggest that party procedures are still lacking. Work. Yeah, absolutely. And the, one of those hard left types uh, appeared on BBC's Newsnight the other day. I'm not suggesting this is a member of the anti-Semitic hard left faction. I've no idea what his what his views on on Jewish people is. But he was pointing out the double standards in the Labour Party is that that because this this guy Ali actually historically has been on the right of the Labour Party, he's not a traditional hard lefty. Uh, that they cut him a lot of slack. That Starmer would have chopped him off at the knees straight away if he had been an old-fashioned Corbynista type type lefty. So the accusation of double standards is being hurled at Keir Starmer that he treats. Um, right-wingers far more favorably than he does hard lefties. And I think that's an accusation that's stuck. I don't know how much it accounts for the fall in their, in the opinion polls. Um, I'm not sure we can account for the fall in the opinion polls. I think a couple of things have happened. I think Starmer's refusal to be absolutely anti-Israel has cost him votes, particularly in the Muslim community. I suspect that's something the sophologists will, will be identifying. And the, the other thing, I think it's probably a random poll. Yeah. Okay, Chris, uh, an enjoyable tour around the world of politics. Uh, all of these areas we will revisit, I've no doubt. So great to talk. Thanks, Jim. That was a great conversation.